Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church this morning. Great to be with you. I'm uh, Michael, one of the pastors here at Salt Church. And if you're new, uh, great to have you with us. I'd love to, to meet you after our gathering this morning. Uh, really great too that Easter's coming. Uh, let me keep encouraging you to invite someone to Easter uh, this Good Friday. Fantastic time for someone to explore who is Jesus, what are we on about here at Salt. So let me encourage you to get out there uh, and invite someone. Let's pray as we come to God's Word. Let's hear what God's got to say to us this morning. Our great Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you haven't left us in the dark. Please uh, help us now as we battle those distractions. Uh, as we participate in that spiritual warfare that goes on where the evil one doesn't want us to hear the word of God and yet you are a good and gracious God. By your spirit, please speak to us, open this part of the Bible for us, help us to see Jesus more clearly, help us to live for him and honour him and we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I want to say that... uh, questions. Uh, Life is full of questions, yeah? There's the really trivial questions, you know, the when you go to the retailer, um, do you want fries with that? The, uh, what is it, casual card, do you have flybys, all those kind of annoying retail type questions. But then there's also really substantial questions in life, isn't there? Like, up the other end is, will you marry me? Uh, We had a wedding here um, last night, a a 5pm couple, so Dean and Shari DeRoy, um, and it got to that moment in the service, I was conducting the wedding, uh, will you take this man to be your husband? And it's like, pretty tense moment, she said, yes, I will, it was all good. Um, there's actually a one a more tense moment before that where it's, does anyone have anything against these people getting married? You know, pause, tense, no one says anything, we continue on. You know, the question that really got me yesterday was the question to the father of the bride. Uh, Who gives this woman to be married to this man? He pauses at the aisle and he just waits. He's like like holding on to it. He wants to hold up the whole ceremony. Uh, But then I thought, hang on, I'm a dad. I've got three girls. He's, He's wrestling with, I'm giving my daughter away. And then he says, I do. And the whole wedding goes ahead. It's all good. Um... There's so many moments in a wedding that can go wrong. Um, Sometimes we don't even know what the really important questions are in life. I don't know if it's the case for you, but um, when we buy appliances at home, we do all this research, you know, you want to buy a new oven and you look into all the features, what brand, what what are the features for for the oven, and they talk about the anxiety of choice, that you've just got this plethora of choice, that you can go through all these different combinations... And it gets people anxious. And, you know, you can get exasperated. You don't know what to choose. And then what we normally find ourselves asking someone, if you're in store, ask the salesperson. And it's really fascinating what they say, they say to you. They normally say to you, oh, actually, they're, they're all the same. It doesn't really matter. Just choose one. Um, a good test is, will this decision matter in five years' time? Will this decision matter in 12 months' time? Some, so some of those decisions don't even matter in a month's time. Probably a more important question about the oven is, did you leave the oven on this morning? 
That's an important question. Uh, we have questions for God. It's great to have questions for God. But actually, more important is what are the questions that God has for us? Uh, That's one of the reasons why we work our way through the Bible each week. We actually want to hear what has God got to say to us? What are God's questions for us? And then what are his answers? Uh, Our culture has different questions uh, that kind of reveal what's important in life. Uh, What do you get asked at a party? Uh, What do you do? Uh, Where do you live? Where have you bought a house? It's kind of how wealthy are you? What's your status? How much do you earn? But the most important question, of course, is the question in the end that we all must answer, the question that our eternity depends on, the question that our culture spends so little, sadly, on, and that's the question that's addressed in this passage this morning, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That matters more than anything else. It matters so much because of the massive claims that Jesus made. It matters who Muhammad is. It matters uh, who Mahatma Gandhi is. But it matters who Jesus is because of what he said and what he claimed to be. Eternity depends on it. Uh, I brought this quote up a few weeks ago. C.S. Lewis, the king of the Narnia series, says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So then it's worth our attention. It's, it's why we're asking people to explore Christianity, to come and see, is Jesus true? Is he who he says he is? Because it's so important. So come with me, Matthew chapter 16, have it open in front of you, Matthew 16 verses 1 to 20, get your phone open, your Bible open, whatever you've got there. We're actually at the climax of Matthew's gospel. Here's the pinnacle of, of the biography of uh, Jesus' life from Matthew's perspective. Uh, it's the turning point in the gospel. Uh, it's really, really significant part, a, a magnificent chapter. In fact, we're not going to look at the whole chapter today. First 20 verses, come back on Good Friday, and there's a massive sting in the tail at the end of this chapter, which will be really exciting on Good Friday. But here's, here's Matthew 16, verses 1 to 20 in three parts. This morning, it's who is Jesus? The most important question in the world. Secondly, why that question is not easy to answer. In fact, it's impossible for you to get it. Thirdly, there's a danger, there's a warning from Jesus here. So who is Jesus? Why is that question not easy to answer and a danger to avoid? So firstly, who is Jesus? Uh, It was John Calvin, the 16th century reformer, who said, the two most important things in all of life, if you can grab these, you'll unlock the keys to life. What are they? Knowledge of God, knowledge of yourself. Uh, You won't really understand yourself unless you understand God. You won't really understand God unless you understand your place under him, who you are. And so we're going to dig into both of those this morning. Have a look in verse 13. Let's uh, orientate ourselves. Jesus has been travelling. We saw last week he's travelling to the northern regions. He's deep within Galilee. He's deep within Gentile territory. He's in Caesarea Philippi. You can see up there on a map. I think we've got it. Um, If it's coming... And um, so up there in, in Galilee, and here's the question he's got for his disciples. Who do people say? What's the word on the street about who I am? Uh, who do people say the Son of Man is? That's just Jesus' reference to himself, the Son of Man, me. 
who do people say I am? And it's really interesting, isn't it? The different responses, not that different from today. If you went and asked your friends, who is Jesus? Great question to ask. In fact, there's the question to ask. When you're in all kinds of questions and uh, people are asking you questions, who do you think Jesus is? That's the question to ask. Jesus asked it of his disciples. Who do people say I am? And the answer is not God, is it? It's actually, well, they're, they're saying you're a very important prophet. You're someone who speaks the word of God. You're someone who's respected. They actually believe you're probably a prophet of old who's risen from the dead. People believed in spiritual things. People believed in the resurrection. Um, it's similar today in, in the sense that people can deeply respect Jesus, don't you think? And yet not call him Lord at all. So uh, Muslims are happy to say Jesus is a prophet. Uh, Hindus are content to say Jesus has some wise sayings. He's a, he has a voice in our wisdom literature. Uh, even Oprah loves to quote Jesus. Uh, not that I like to quote Oprah. Um, lots of people would say... Jesus is to be respected, he was a good teacher, he might have been a prophet, he was wise. Um, even the, the non-scriptural evidence from the first century points to a lot of that. Jesus can actually be respected without being the Lord, without being the King. Uh, Jesus can actually be just an amazing human being. He can actually just be a better version of you, someone to aspire to. Uh, that is, you can have a high enough view of Jesus to respect him, but low enough view of Jesus not to bow the knee to him. Does that make sense? So a high enough view that you, you respect him, but a low enough view that you, you won't change your life for him. That's going a bit far, isn't it? So then Jesus asks his disciples, who then do you say I am? And of course, Peter pipes up, doesn't he? Uh, And he gets it, you you are the Messiah, you are the son of the living God, you are the Christ, you are the king. Uh, Jesus, your job is to rule the world. That's what Christ means, that's what Messiah means. And if that is true, well, that's what Peter Hitchens, the brother of the famous Hitchens atheist, said, if Jesus is the son of God and he rose from the dead, that is the most dangerous idea in all of the world. That is massively significant. That changes everything. That means that we're not alone in the universe. God, in his greatness, has come into our world. We are accountable to someone. He cares. There's a whole lot of things that come out of that. I reckon you can actually tell, can you not, the person who recognises Jesus as Lord. It's not just respect uh, or honour. It's actually, I'm going to change my life for him. I owe my life to him. My aspirations, my dreams now fall away. Now I live for the King, Jesus. He's the one I want to love and honour and with all my life. My whole direction of my life will be directed by him. And so Jesus tells us, Peter gets it right, he is the Messiah. And notice uh, he gets it right not because he's smart. In fact, Jesus wants to point that out to him. Uh, It's because God, your heavenly Father, has revealed it to you. Uh, Jesus says that God has opened Peter's eyes. It's, it's the only way it can happen, isn't it? It's what, Peter, it's, what, sorry, it's what Jesus said to Nicodemus, another part of the gospel. You need to be born again. You won't get this yourself. You cannot enter the kingdom of God 
you need to be born again. God needs to do something radical for you. And he's done it, it seems, for Peter. Look at uh, verse 18, because Peter's confession is so significant, Jesus makes a massive statement about the building of his church. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Massive statement, isn't it? A lot of blood has been spilled over that very verse uh, in history, in church history. A play on words, Peter means rock. So Peter, the rock, you are, you could say rocky. Upon you, I will build my church. Upon you, the rock, I will build my church. Um, And think on that promise for a moment. Uh, Jesus says, I will build my church. Um, before we work out what it means, how does Jesus do it? Notice what Jesus says. My church. I will build my church. And my church will be unbreakable, indestructible. That is the nature of Jesus' church. He says, look at it again, not even Hades, not even death, the place of death, not even hell will overcome it. It will always be there. It has been there for 2,000 years. It doesn't mean it won't suffer. It doesn't mean it won't dwindle. It don't, doesn't mean uh, that it won't be persecuted, that it won't sin, that it won't waver. But Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. That's what Jesus wants us to know. That's what Jesus wants Peter and his disciples to know. Here is the most important project that you could possibly be part of. Is there anything that you could give your life to, your prayers, your energy, your time, your money, more than the building of God's church? Is there anything more eternal? Is there anything more worthy of your efforts? Jesus says it, it will last into eternity. Here's the thing that will not go away. Here's the thing that's worth giving your life to as you give your life to Jesus. And sometimes you, you think about it and you go, well, it feels so small and weak and feeble. And in our part of the world, it is numerically small too, isn't it? Uh, so few Aussies call Jesus Lord. But there are hundreds of millions of people in Africa, in South America, in Asia, who are calling Jesus Lord and coming to his church as Jesus builds his church. I heard a stat this, uh, this week that in China, the church is growing so rapidly that in the next 50 years, if it keeps growing at that rate, it'll be the largest Christian nation in the world. It used to be incredibly atheistic. And what is Jesus saying? He's saying it's not built on Peter. The church is not built on Peter as some kind of pope, the infallible one who, who needs to be... You need to find a successor for every generation. Uh, It's not built on Peter the Pope for whom you need to be part of, to be part of the church, as the Roman Catholic Church has interpreted. No, no, it's actually much more simple than that. It's Jesus' church. We we, we forget that. Jesus is saying, I'm building my church, and I'm building on that confession that you just said. What you just said, Peter, you are the Christ. I'm building it on that. You are my Lord, Peter said. I'm building on that. And so precious stone by stone, 
Jesus is building his church as people confess that Jesus is Lord, as they come and recognise his kingship over them. And it's bigger than that, isn't it? Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That is massive, isn't it? You will determine who comes in and who comes out. That's what it feels like it's saying. Uh, It's why uh, the Pope has on his insignia, have you noticed it there? The keys, the the old-fashioned keys, the ones that your grandparents had, yeah, to open up the laundry. That's what we've got. Um, Because the Pope is thinking, I've got the keys for the kingdom, but it's not the Pope who opens the kingdom of God for people, as the Roman Catholic Church has said for generations. Actually, Jesus said in Matthew 18, you, the church, have the keys, as he's talking about uh, church disciplining people, uh, welcoming people, but also sending people away in the church. In Matthew 28, it's Jesus who says to his disciples, you go and make disciples and add to the numbers of the church as church grows. It's actually Christians, the disciples, us as disciples, who have the keys of the kingdom because we have the message of Jesus who is the Christ. That's what we proclaim. That's what we're calling people to to consider. And so, who has the keys? You have the keys. God's church has the keys. Uh, Through us, people will come to know Jesus. It's Jesus' church, but he chooses to use us. You have the keys. Now, think about keys for a moment. Um, So, if I pull out my bunch of keys, um, there's a lot of keys on here. And um, what are keys... Keys normally mean that you're opening up something valuable, yeah? So I've got two vehicles on here, uh, which aren't particularly valuable, but they're valuable to me. Um, I've got a house key. I've got a key to 275. Um, I've got a key to my mum's house. Um, If you took this bunch of keys, you could get access to lots of things. But what do keys do? They open the way, don't they? They open you up to something presumably valuable or precious. Um, I remember the, the key, when I picked up the keys to our first house, um, it's really interesting how excited people get. We, we were like, we need a place to live. We had enough money. We bought a house. Went to the real estate agent and the whole, it felt like the whole staff was standing up and almost applauding as we picked up the keys to our house. And it's like, it just shows... Values. They thought it was fantastic. Um, I remember handing uh, the keys over to my daughter when she got her piece. Precious moment. Um, now I'm giving the keys to another daughter who's on her L's. Um, we have the keys to the kingdom of God. That is amazing, isn't it? If you think about that, people will have access to the kingdom of God through the keys of the church, through the gospel, through them hearing about the Lord the Saviour, Jesus. And so how tragic is it if those keys remain hidden away? How tragic is it if those keys get changed so they don't open the kingdom of God? So important that those keys open the kingdom for people. We have the keys of the kingdom. What an awesome privilege. So there it is. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Messiah. God will build his church as people confess that Jesus is Lord. But Second point, have you ever wondered why people don't get it? Have you ever thought, I've become a Christian, I understand Jesus the Messiah, but 
how come it's not clear? How can it not be clear? I see that Jesus is Lord. Well, I want you to have a look at the, uh, another part of chapter 16, back to the verse 1, and think about the Pharisees and Sadducees for a moment, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. Now, they're often portrayed as the bad guys. They're often portrayed as the, um, those who are in enemies, clashing heads with Jesus, which they are. But I actually want you to think about them more as just human beings in opposition to Jesus where everyone starts, right? So even the disciples are butting heads with Jesus. Even the disciples don't get Jesus. So in, in a sense, it's what the Bible teaches. Before God changed our hearts, we're in opposition to Jesus. We don't get Jesus. So just think about the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees in that way for a moment with me. Uh, verse 1, they come to test Jesus, uh, which is not a great start, isn't it? <laughs> when you come and you've got a question for Jesus, but you really just want to test him, you want to oppose him, it feels tense. Um, it's, it's kind of the nature of questions too, isn't it? There, there are questions to know, to genuinely know, and there are questions that um, you just want to oppose, uh, the person you're asking, you don't really want to know. It feels a bit like that, doesn't it? What do they say? Uh, verse 1, come to Jesus, they come to Jesus, they test him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Show us something that demonstrates that you are the Messiah. Can you just give us something? Um, prove yourself. We want to see something that demonstrates you are the Messiah. Now notice Jesus' reply, verse 2. Uh, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. In the morning today, it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. See what he's saying? You, you can predict the weather really, really well. I think we're, we're pretty good at that as well. Um, what's the phrase? A red sky at night is a shepherd's delight. A red sky in the morning is a shepherd's warning. If you've grown up in the country, you might know that phrase. I grew up in the city. I don't know what it means. Um, but something about, you know, you can tell the patterns, what's going to happen the next day. They even predict seven-day, 28-day uh, forecast. You can work all that out but you cannot interpret the signs of the times, Jesus says, which tells you what? That there are signs there for you to interpret. If you'd looked and seen Jesus and seen what he did and said, you'd see that he is the Messiah. That's what Jesus is saying. He's calling them wicked and adulterous, not because they've left their wives for adultery, but because they've left their God, their Jews, and they're committing adultery towards God, away from God to other gods. Jesus has actually appeared right before them. That's what Matthew's record, recorded for us. He's, what has he done? He's healed the, the blind, the sick, the lame. He's raised the dead. And they want to know a sign. Uh, he's just fed 5,000 people, then 4,000 people. Did you not get that that was a picture of Moses and the great prophet is to come to feed God's people in the wilderness? This is the Messiah. You think you know, of all people, you know the Old Testament, you are the, the religious leaders, the, um, the Pharisees, the people of the word, and you don't get this? They, ref they actually refuse to believe. Have you heard that phrase, none so blind as those who will not see? It's not that it did, the signs didn't appear before them, they don't want to see them. They don't want to acknowledge Jesus as king. It's actually our problem as human beings, isn't it? That with, without God doing a radical work on our hearts, 
We don't want Jesus to be king. It doesn't matter about the evidence. I want to rule my life my way. I don't want Jesus to get in the way. It actually says something really significant about the evidence for Jesus, doesn't it? It's not that there's not enough evidence for Jesus. That's not the reason people don't come to Jesus. Don't ever think that. There is a mass load of evidence. There is more evidence for Jesus, the word of God, the gospels, his resurrection, than any other person in history. That's not the problem. The problem is our hearts. We're hard-hearted. We're like the Pharisees. Jesus can be right in our face and we won't see him. We don't want to see him. So let me encourage you, if, if that's you, if you're, if you're exploring God is doing a work in your life, do keep going. Let us help you work out, is Jesus true? There is evidence. There is things you need to check out. Connect with us. We'd love to help you. But it's actually bigger than that, isn't it? It's a hard-heartedness. Uh, not just, is there a God? Is Jesus real? But deep down, I don't want him to be real. I don't want him to be king. I've noticed this um, pastorally over the years uh, when people sadly walk away from the faith. Uh, They walk away from the faith usually because of a moral choice that they've made. But often what they'll say is, I don't know whether Jesus is real anymore. I don't know whether there's enough evidence uh, to convince me that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Actually, nothing's changed from the evidence. You've made a choice that you don't want Jesus to be Lord anymore. Uh, it's what Romans chapter 1, 18 says. Uh, I won't read it all out for you now, but go back to Romans chapter 1. It talks about the wrath of God uh, going out to all of the world because God has made himself plain. He is clearly made plain even in the creation before you even get to Jesus. And yet we choose to ignore him and we're responsible for that. I remember doing a master's subject uh, at college uh, while I was a pastor on the Central Coast. And it was a, I think it was a subject about the Word of God, but they got us, to talk, got us to delve into the work of atheism to understand the arguments against the Bible, against God. And I actually remember thinking, oh, looking, looking at all these texts, looking at all these highly qualified, so-called highly qualified atheists and thinking, wow, this is quite scary. What if they're right? What if after this study I work out that I shouldn't be a Christian and I shouldn't be a pastor? This is, this is really significant. They're saying that Jesus is not real. They're saying Jesus is a fairy tale. And as I looked into it, so I, I, I delved into it and it was, it was great, but you know what I, I, I worked out? Actually, they only very superficially dealt with the evidence of Jesus, sometimes not at all. In fact, it didn't seem that they were that interested in the evidences for Jesus. It didn't appear at all very scholarly. Uh, It's the criticism that Richard Dawkins has had. In fact, Richard Dawkins, one of the most famous atheists of our time, one of his friends said to him, you know, in all due respect, you're too zealous. You are so anti-God, you're so passionate against God, so passionately for atheism, you're not considering the arguments. And you're letting the side down. <laughs> uh, it was John Lennox. One of, uh, he's a Christian apologist. He wrote his PhD about the existence of God. And apparently he said that he quoted Richard Dawkins. He felt like he had to quote Richard Dawkins because he's so popular. But his supervisor said, you can't quote Richard Dawkins. He's, he's not an academic. His work is not worthy of 
a PhD. But he's really popular because he tells people what they want to hear. There is no God. The problem is the heart. Notice Jesus says, though, there is one sign that you'll receive, and it's the sign of Jonah. Uh, remember the Old Testament prophet? We heard a glimpse of it in the Jonah reading. Uh, what, what's, the, what's the sign that the Pharisees will see that points back to Jonah? Well, it's, there's an obvious connection there, isn't there? There's the three days that Jonah was in the belly of the fish and then spat out onto the beach. Uh, Jesus will be three days in the, in the grave and then rise, spat out in resurrection. But actually, there's another connection. There's the connection that Jonah didn't want the people of the Ninevites to turn to God. He didn't want God to be gracious and kind, and yet the Ninevites turned, they repented. And Jesus said, you're going to see that again. You're going to see Gentiles, people who are not part of the Jewish nation. When the gospel is proclaimed after my death and resurrection, the Messiah is here. Look hard. Do pray for eyes to see the Messiah and what he's done. Pray for others, pray for our city. But look lastly with me, quickly. There's a warning from Jesus. Notice in verse 5, he actually says it twice. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. Um, Some people here at Salt do bread making, yeah? I don't know uh, who they are, but I know they're out there. Um, And what's the go with yeast? Apparently yeast is, is the... I'm not very good at this kind of thing. <laughs> but it's the thing that makes the bread rise, yeah? Um, it goes through the whole batch. It makes the bread what it is, okay? But it's, it goes through the whole batch. And I think Jesus is saying, watch out, there's the yeast of the Pharisees, a small teaching. I think he's referring to the teaching of the Pharisees that will permeate the whole church, the whole of the disciples, if they're not careful. Watch out for the teaching of the Pharisees. Uh, the, the disciples, of course, get this all mixed up. They think he's talking about bread and, and where's the bread and Jesus, again, you have little faith. I've just fed 5,000, I've just fed 4,000. We're not talking about bread. If I wanted to give you bread, I could have given you bread. I'm talking about teaching. I'm talking about what you listen to, what you learn. Don't be like the Pharisees. And what were the Pharisees like? Let's let's quickly think about that. Um, The Pharisees who taught hypocrisy and and godlessness, whose lives didn't match up with what they said. They were people who were often proud and envious of others. They felt threatened by Jesus. Uh, They're often worldly, aren't they, and and short-sighted. They can't see spiritual things. They can't see Jesus for who he is. Don't be like that. But haven't we seen here, don't be hard-hearted. Don't be blind. Ask God to open your eyes to see Jesus, to see the Messiah, that you might enter the kingdom of God and get, get what this church is about, the building of God's church. Jesus says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. What a, what a huge problem uh, for us even today. Well, let me, let me wrap up. What have we seen? Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is building his church. It's on the confession of those who proclaim Jesus the Messiah. Uh, what a wonderful comfort. The gates of hell will not overcome the church. Uh, each person who acknowledges Jesus the Messiah will be added to the church. Who's got the keys to the church? Uh, we have as the disciples of Jesus. Uh, we will welcome people into the kingdom of God as they hear about Jesus. 
We're going to do that even this Easter. But there's a warning there, isn't there? Uh, Don't be like the Pharisees who are hard-hearted. Pray that you are not like that. Pray that you actually see the things that Jesus wants you to see. Pray for your friends, pray for our city to see, look at Jesus, he's the Messiah, he's the one. I'm going to pray that prayer now and then we're going to um, enjoy uh, communion together. So a a remembrance of what Jesus has done for us as Lord and Saviour. So why don't I pray first? Great Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you, for so many of us here, have opened our eyes, that we were blind, that we were hard-hearted, that we couldn't see, but by your Spirit you've caused us to see that your Son Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Lord, the one we owe our lives to. Uh, Father, help us to keep seeing him for who he is, uh, to get his ways, his kingdom, his church. Uh, thank you so much that you've involved us Uh, You've given us the keys to the kingdom, uh, that we'd have that precious privilege of welcoming people in uh, to your church as they hear about Jesus and bow the knee to him. Father, please protect us against hard-heartedness, hypocrisy, pride, short-sightedness, worldliness. Help us to keep the big picture, the eternal church in mind. Father, we pray for those amongst us uh, who are still working Jesus out, Lord, please help us to help them. Uh, Give them eyes to see Jesus as Saviour and Lord. And Lord, now as we participate in this meal, uh, this bread and this grape juice, remembering you as Lord but also as Saviour, as we approach Easter as well, Lord, we thank you so much that your Son, the Lord, um, became our Saviour, died in our place so that we might be forgiven. Uh, Father, we pray that you'd help us to reflect on these things now. In Jesus' name, amen.